Hello and welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Fractured Atlas is our new nonprofit fiscal sponsor, which allows us to access a wide range of funding possibilities, including funding available only for nonprofits. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the dash y dash make dash project or go to the donate to why make page on why hyphen make.com welcome to our first podcast of the 2023 season of why make this episode is part two of our in-depth conversation with the artist wendy moriyama wendy moriyama is a furniture maker sculptor and retired educator who resides in san diego california Wendy's work has tackled a wide scope of topics from traditional furniture forms to exploring her Japanese heritage and the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II to the issue of endangered species. As we discuss later in the podcast, Wendy was born with significant hearing loss and cerebral palsy. And at her request, to aid our listeners, we've included a full transcript of our conversation on our webpage for this episode, which can be found on the podcast page of whymake.com y-make.com. It can also be found in the episode notes on Apple Podcasts. Please join us and take a listen to our wide-ranging discussion with one of the more amazing artists in the woodworking field, Wendy Murayama. Moving along, Wendy, let's talk about the next phase of your work because the next phase of your work, you do start to tackle some of your identities in your bodies of work in turning Japanese simple pleasures and indulgence, and men in kimonos, you do start to sort of not only address your heritage, but really start to use narrative in your work. What was what was behind all of that? I mean, what do you think was the inspiration behind that, the whole thing that started um, with turning Japanese and men in kimonos, exploring your cultural identity? I think um, the turning Japanese series... Uh... The men in kimonos came from my first trip to Japan, which was in 92, maybe, I can't remember, but I'd never been to Japan until uh, the early 90s, and like anybody else, I was just amazed by what I was seeing over there, especially as a craft person, there's such a strong craft heritage in Japan, not only with woodworking, ceramics, and textiles, and at the same time, some of the fields like textiles had really evolved into the modern times. They were using unusual fibers and metals and the weavings and um, and then of course going to downtown Tokyo in the Shibuya district, I mean there's all this neon stuff. It was very much like Blade Runner. If you've seen the movie it's Blade Runner was clearly based on Tokyo and and so there were these Two very different aspects of Japan, the, the old 
And then there was the very, very, very new high-tech side of it. There was a little bit of conflict, too, you know. There, I'd be riding on the subway, and then you'd see these Japanese businessmen reading the pornographic uh, cartoons. Mm-hmm. It was called manga, I think it was. And there was all these, you know, ladies with big boobs, and it's all cartoons, and... I don't know, just such a, such a, such a flurry of, uh, images and, uh, so I think some of that work was mostly my personal response to what I saw in Japan and, uh, I realized that I didn't fit in even though I was Japanese American, Japanese descent. I did not fit into that whole culture. I mean, even if I tried, I mean, I'm kind of proud of it from a distance, but uh, I realized I don't think like that. And so maybe that was kind of a, a mixture of sadness and relief in a way. Um, it's a very patriarchal society, so there was that. And... Um, it was just kind of in response to my my experiences going to Japan. And the other interesting thing about that body of work is you begin to introduce using um, video and still images into it, too. And you're really starting to truly experiment with your craft. And, and I thought that was absolutely wonderful. You know, you reached outside the box, which I think is what we all aim to do as artists, when you, you first started using video and still images, where was where did that come from? I'm trying to remember if the Tasmanian Tiger piece was first. I think it was. In, in the Turning Japanese series, I started using photos because I went to a flea market in Kyoto. It's one of the best things about Japan. It's amazing what you can find at those flea markets. I mean, I would, if you ever go to Japan, make sure that you go when there's a big flea market, either in Kyoto or Tokyo. The, the stuff that you'll find is amazing. But anyway, I came across a box of old black and white photographs of kabuki actors. And I found out later that in Kabuki theater, women were not allowed to perform. I don't know if that's the case now, but um, women were not allowed to perform in Kabuki. And so the female characters in a Kabuki play were always played by men who were experts, you know, mimicking the feminine movements of women in in the story. So all these uh, men, I mean, all these women in kimonos were actually men that were quite beautiful and alluring. And I was just kind of fascinated by that, how beautiful these men were. And I wanted, and they were prettier than I was. And I thought, well, I just thought it would be, be kind of fun to use some of these images. At the same time, um, 
I'm a big Japanese sci-fi fan. I think it was because that was the first time I saw Japanese people in a movie. Was in a, a Godzilla movie where you see all the Japanese people running from Godzilla. And in one of the Godzilla movies, there's these twin fairies. I don't know if you remember. They, they were sidekicks to <laughs> Mothra, who was another monster. And so I wanted to create this, uh, these twin geisha women in this image of this and I don't know. I kind of, it's amazing about Photoshop. I was taking a Photoshop class and it's amazing how you can make fantastical images using Photoshop. So that was just an, an opportunity to experiment with, with different media and I tend to jump around from the, you know, from subject to subject just because that's just the way my life goes, you know. I'm not one to stay with one idea for 40 years. I think I'd be bored to death. So it's important for me to just kind of reflect my life through my work. And so hopefully you'll get an idea of what I've been going through by seeing my work in a linear pattern. Yes, it, you you definitely see a progression of your work because then the next body of work you move on to is Executive Order 9066 and the TAG project. And of course, this is referring to, and I'm going to use the correct terminology, this is referring to the incarceration and or imprisonment of the Japanese people on the west coast of America during the World War II. Just to give you an idea of the scope of this project, and Wendy, you can go on to talk about it more, but there were 120,000 Japanese people of Japanese heritage um, imprisoned during EO 9066, and the TAG project, you printed out a a, a replica of the original tags these people wore as they were sent to their prison camps. 120,000 tags. That is a mind-boggling number. That's a lot of tags. I, I, um, I started this body of work when I was an artist in residency at SUNY New York. SUNY purchased, I mean, State University of New York purchased. I knew that I needed to do this work. But I wasn't really ready until then. I mean, it's just a very hard topic because my mother's side of the family was deeply impacted by Executive Order 9 just because they were in Los Angeles at the time when Pearl Harbor was bombed and, and all that happened. But what struck me and kind of made me sort of angry is I was really surprised at how many people didn't even know about this episode in American history, especially on the East Coast and in the South. And you know, even now, sometimes you run into people who don't even know about it. I think people know, more people know about it now. But even uh, 15 years ago when I started this project, I was running across a lot of people who didn't know 
country of freedom and, and all that. Um, it was, uh, I just needed to really bring that to the forefront with my work. And I also wanted to get to know more of the Japanese-American community. And so one of the first things I did was I reached out to the, to the local San Diego Japanese American Historical Society to talk more about uh, Executive Order 906. And I started talking to a lot of other people who were sent to prison in Boston, which was in Arizona. Most people from San Diego were sent to a prison camp in Arizona. And that's when I started to make it into a community project, and I would host these uh, tag writing parties, and we would have different uh, chores. People would stamp tags, they would write the names, they would tie, the, tie them together. There were a lot of processes in for each tag, and the only way I was going to be able to do 120,000 tags to make it a community project, but hopefully make it a um, an educational project and also a social advocacy project so that people could learn about what happened and I would show a slideshow before we would start working on the tags. I was going to temples and churches and high school classes and college classes and galleries and museums. So it was kind of a broad outreach. And it took four years, but we did manage to finish all the tags in time for the 70th anniversary of Executive Order 906. That was a massive undertaking. What led you at the beginning to first think of producing these 120,000 tags? <laughs> I must have been crazy, you know. <laughs> I started out by making just a few tags of people that my family knew. And uh, I was incorporating them into um, these cabinet pieces and... For instance, this one cabinet has the image of a young Japanese-American girl in the back. And the tags were all of children who were under the age of 10 that were sent to camp um, in 1942. But then uh, a friend of mine, Christine Lee, came to visit me in New York and she said, you know, it would be amazing if you can do all 120,000 tags. Now, Christine kind of, um, she does this kind of work, you know, that, that very, um, labor intensive. 
And at first I thought she was crazy, but then, you know, I thought about it, and I thought, oh, the impact that it would have would be so much more powerful than just seeing a couple of times here and there. And um, I like the idea of outreach and, you know, I'm kind of a shy person, and so it's really hard for me to like reach out to strangers and 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 ask, you know, just to interact. I think it has a lot to do with my hearing disability. It kind of forced me to do that. And I mean, we'll have pictures of all this up on the on our website, just to paint a picture. So there's two pieces to the tag project in and EO nine nine oh six six. So there is the tag project, which represents all hundred twenty thousand people that were imprisoned in ten camps. Correct. Right. Memorializes the ten camps that were mostly over the the southwest, and just amazing images of these places where people were housed for for three, four years, and it's an equally intense part of the piece. I would I would encourage people to look into it further. And also, there is a great website called Denshow, D-E-N-S-H-O dot org, which will help better inform you about the incarceration and imprisonment of people of Japanese, Japanese Americans. Remember, these were Americans, Japanese Americans, during World War II. There's also, you've kept quite a blog about the process of the project on your website. I did, and, and I feel bad that I haven't really kept it up, up to date, but it was really to follow the whole process of the TAG project. And at the same time, I wanted to share relevant news articles that were not only about executive order dino but, you know, discrimination. Uh, I remember working on the t- tags and this whole outcry where a woman at the UCLA library posted a video of herself complaining about Asian students in the library. And she was making fun of the way they talk. Ching chong, ching chong. And... But the video went viral and it kind of um, backfired on her. Discrimination on our level is still alive and well, as most people know now. So moving on to your next advocacy project, because this really is a phase of your life where you're taking on a very much the role of an advocate, is the Wildlife Project. Do you want to describe the Wildlife Project a little bit? Like uh, I've said before, and I think you know, know that I love animals more than people. People <laughs> <I> just awful. <laughs> and I uh, started reading too many articles about the demands of um, the elephant in particular, poaching uh, for the ivory, and not only just the elephant, but the uh, rhinoceros and tigers and all uh, for the sake of uh, being able to show off somebody's wealth. And uh, the elephant population was really precariously dropping to the point where they were in danger of becoming extinct. So I wanted to um, 
do a whole series of work that kind of highlighted this issue. And at the same time, I, I met somebody, Elizabeth Kozlowski, who wanted, who was an independent curator, and she wanted me to do an exhibition at the Houston Center for Contemporary Choir, which is where she was working at the time. And so that was the incentive that, that gave me the incentive to make a whole body of work about wildlife. Again, you know, elephants are big, and I wanted to be able to make these huge pieces, and but I had to figure out, out a way to make them big without making them heavy and difficult manage. I mean, at the time, I was working in a very small studio, and uh, so I came up with the idea of making them out of very thin pieces of wood and sewing them together. Um, when I was in high school, I loved to sew, and the fabrication of making a dress or an article of clothing very um, three-dimensional, and it could be applied very easily to other materials like cardboard and wood and paper. I guess it's like a form of origami, creating volume with these very flat surfaces. So that, that was how that work came about. Uh, and then it was accompanied with a bunch of other pieces. The other thing that fascinated me about that show is that the other pieces were in different mediums. You did a huge rhinoceros in plaster, and then you did a pangolin, which I'm not really familiar with what a pangolin is, in rattan. Uh, it was, uh, you still continue to experiment, and I, I just find that wonderful. It's fun, you know, like I said, I think woodworking, just doing woodworking would really bore me to death. Just some materials that just, they have a different capacity to express a different idea. The thing about uh, glass is that I was able to, I was offered a residency picture. And so it's kind of funny how these opportunities come together and make it possible to, to integrate with the project. And so I was able to spend, I think it was two weeks or three weeks at picture. And I was given two amazing glass blowers to help me make these tasks. And I mean, obviously glass was the perfect medium and it was kind of, um, tricky because, um, knows William Moss. William Moss was a real hot glass blower. He's still blowing glass. He kind of, um, became known for these very large, blown, uh, primitive forms, and he also did elephant tests, but it was uh, a different context, you know. He presented them as, um, sure, I'm not sure, but just large sculptures of beautiful tests, and I wanted to portray the tusk as being bloody, and taken from a living animal. So the glass blowers and I had a conversation about that. 
you know, I said, I don't want to do it if you feel like it trenched too closely with other glass blowers work. But my message is completely different, and they, they agreed that it would work with the kind of presentation that I was using. Talks were created was through the help of Dan Friday and Nancy Collin, who are amazing glass blowers in the theater area. And then, of course, there's the the life size um, plaster of Paris and burlap rhinoceros. <laughs> what was I thinking, right? Um, you were thinking about that old desk that you made a long, <laughs> long time ago with chicken wire and paper mache. I learned a lot from that paper mache piece. You know, I thought about that paper mache piece when I was doing the plaster rhino. It's kind of funny how that comes around again. The rhino was necessary to make because I wanted to have that scale and I wanted it to be made out of plaster because it was white and it was fragile and it was like a ghost. But now I need to find somebody who needs a plaster rhino. So if you, if you know anybody that wants it and they can pay for shipping, you're welcome to Hamlet. I would take the plaster rhino, but Rob will have to pay for the shipping. <laughs> we might be able to work something out. I mean, I could put it behind me here in my office, but... The size of a small Volkswagen bug. Uh, that's how big it is. Well, speaking of the wildlife project, one of the pictures I'll, I'll, we'll post on the website is a wonderful picture of Rob and I and Tommy Simpson in front of one of the elephant masks when we were filming the Tommy Simpson documentary. And we didn't end up using it in the documentary, but it's it was it was just a wonderfully sweet moment of talking about about your piece, Wendy, with Tommy Simpson as we were as we were filming for the, the Tommy Simpson uh documentary. Tommy Simpson, like I said, you know, he was uh, a huge inspiration back in 1970, 71, and I still have his very first book that he did. It's all torn up from years of flipping through it <laughs> and sharing with my It's students. well loved and well used. And so, uh, that really makes me happy. Two years ago, I mean, you know, who would have, you know, I would have never known that I would cross path Tommy Simpson back. Then, I mean, you know, he was like a movie star back then in the 70s. And then when he came to visit San Diego one year, I was like, oh, I'm staying at my So let's talk about your most recent bodies of work, the color field pieces and, and memory, because uh, you're sort of leaving advocacy and going back to your, your roots in color. I love the color field pieces. They're, you know, you're you're just really exploring the the basics of color, which is I just find incredibly appealing and and almost a two D sense as opposed to a three dimensional sense. Although there's texture. I um, you know, after doing Executive Order Nine or Six and the Elephant Project, I I was kind of beat up emotionally. It was really tough. Working on those pieces, and it was even tougher for me to talk about those pieces 
after being asked to give talks during the shows. It was kind of difficult to hold myself together. But anyway, I'm, got, I'm getting better at it now. And I can start talking about this thing without breaking out in tears. But I needed to do some work that was not heavy. I needed to do go back to using color again in a very pleasant way. It was an invitation to a show that got me started on color field pieces. Um, somebody in Colorado was having an exhibition of Bauhaus inspired furniture. And because I think it was like the 100th anniversary of Bauhaus and there's a Bauhaus Institute in Aspen. So they wanted to do an exhibition of um, furniture. But the problem was I hated Bauhaus furniture. It wasn't really my thing. Um, I that matter to me <laughs> and whatever. But I loved uh, Annie Albers, who was a weaver with the Bauhaus movement. So, and she had a wonderful use of color, and so I modeled my work after Annie Albert, and it was kind of down my alley in terms of exploring color again. And that's why they became two-dimensional, because the weaving, they, they were inspired by. Were the pieces that you created, were they kind of modeled after, uh, tambours like on a on furniture yeah that's true i forgot about that i'm glad you mentioned that because tambour pieces were one of my favorite things to make actually uh, i've made a lot of um caucus pieces that have tambours and i love the textural qualities of tambours so yeah for sure that was an inspiration your use of more muted colors from the Bauhaus movement, I guess Annie's kind of take on it is is really nice. It's nice to see that side of Bauhaus. I usually like punch colors, but I wanted to experiment with a different uh, tone of color. Very beautiful. So let's talk about a little bit about memory, one of the last bodies of work that you've you've completed. In 2018, my uncle died. I have an aunt and uncle that I'm very close to. They were kind of like a second mom and dad. And my uncle had severe dementia. And he finally passed, I think it was 2018. I'm trying to remember. but um, So my aunt was living alone and turned out that she had dementia as well. You know, she was such a brilliant woman and such, such a role model for me. And it was really tough to see her decline. So we made the decision at the end of 2019 to put her into a memory care facility. And so, um, and then of course, COVID hit. So right after we put her there, we weren't even able to visit her for about six months. COVID, and so there was like a lot of guilt and concern and 
So that, that was kind of tough. You know, like I said, you know, you're getting older and you go through these phrases and then you go through things with your parents. Some of your friends may die and, you know, it's all the stuff that you're going through at my age anyway. So the memory series was first about her losing her memory, but it's also about memories that people keep. And I think it's a very powerful thing. Memories are kind of like dreams in a way. They're, they're kind of special. You know, after a while, you start thinking about dreams that you've had, and they're very similar to the memory. And just a lot of different things that are kind of um, not intangible things that you think about. And so the work of trying to make these intangible things relatable in a very tactile way. So the memory piece I did about my aunt has a black lacquered mirror that goes from completely reflective to it becomes very distorted at the very end to where you don't recognize yourself anymore. And the case that it's in has kind of an, an Asian aesthetic to it, being Japanese-American. But there's a dysfunctional door on the left side. It just moves, but it really doesn't function to any degree. So that was just, just referencing lack of memory, her inability to solve problems. And I think black mules have a lot of meaning. Uh, you know, the iPhone is, is a black mule, it's a black mule to technology. And in Japan, this is interesting because I think I need a black mule. The, the geisha woman in Japan, as they aged, began to use black lacquer as a mirror, because the black lacquer kind of made your wrinkles go away. You couldn't see the wrinkles, so you, you know, the process of aging is sort of disguised in the black mirror. Yeah, anyway, so the whole black mirror series is about, it can mean depth. You know, it's so deep when you look at that black lacquer. It looks like you're looking into a deep, dark hole where you're looking at a reflection. That's been a lot of fun, working with the Black Lacquer. And I've been really lucky because, um, I don't know if you know Greg Johnson. He's a finisher in upstate New York. And he has been doing the Black Lacquer mirrors for me. And he does such a beautiful job. The black mirror is just an incredible metaphor. It's just incredibly powerful. So it's so rich, you know. It's, it's interesting how the many things that you think about when you look at it. Plus, I love that TV series. I've seen the black mirror. I love that TV show. Isn't it great? I've watched it through and through. It, it, it makes you think. So, and and starting to wrap this up, Wendy, what are you working on now? What's your, what's your what's your what's your next body of work, or what are you what are you moving forward with now? I'm 
just finishing up the Black Mirror series and I'm uh, dropping up that little chair I was telling you about earlier. But I don't really know now what I'm going to be making next, but hopefully um, I've been talking to Tom Loser about doing something together. We were kind of talking about maybe showing together again. No, we haven't looked at the details yet, but it's always kind of fun to show with a good old friend, you know. Well, Wendy, I just want to wrap this up because this has been an absolutely wonderful oh, conversation good, with good. you. Good, I'm glad. I hope you can get at least 10 minutes out of it. God. Oh, I think we can at least do 15. No, Wendy, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Right. And, uh, we always end by saying, why make? Why make? Thank you very much. Why make? You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or direct download from our website, why-make.com. Please help support the Why Make podcast and Why Make Productions by making a tax-deductible donation to us on Fractured Atlas. Visit fundraising.fracturedatlas.org forward slash the-y-make-project or go to the Donate to Why Make page on y-make.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.